Hello, hello. Welcome back to Loki's Librarian. If you are new here, I am your librarian, Katrina. Welcome. This is where I am reading through the enormous library of books that you see, looks, books that you see behind me. And then I give you a quick synopsis and I tell you what I think about them. I can't decide if that hat works on the squid. Maybe I'll try out different hats and see if I find something. The other corner is hard because there's a little closet there that I don't want to necessarily block. Anyways. I give you a quick synopsis, tell you what I think about them. So if you like books, just aren't sure what to read next, hit that subscribe button, like and share my videos, let me know what you think in the comments. It is the last Sunday of the month, which means it is time for another president. And this month's president is the 11th president, James Knox Polk, making this week's book of the week, Polk, The Man Who Transformed the Presidency and America by Walter R. Borneman. And the topical cocktail to match the theme is called Manifest Destiny because more than any other president since Monroe passed his famous doctrine, Polk made it his mission to see America spread across the continent from sea to shining sea, and he succeeded. The policy of continental expansion was called Manifest Destiny, hence the cocktail, and I think the term was actually coined during Polk's administration, so here we are. Uh, there were several versions of the Manifest Destiny cocktail. The one that I went with didn't specify three different types of rum. So I went with this one, which is one and a half ounces of aged rum, one ounce of coffee liqueur, a third ounce each of Amaretto, Frangelico, Grand Marnier, and banana liqueur. I'll put all of that in the description. Let's do this. James K. Polk was born on November 2nd, 1795, near Pineville, North Carolina. This is my actual written out recipe. It's easier for me that way. Uh, so he was born near Pineville, North Carolina. He was the oldest of 10 children. Oh my God. Born to Jane and Samuel Polk. He was not necessarily sickly, but he wasn't always in the best of health. He was prone to stomach upsets and kidney stones, which are no joy in the 21st century, but surgery to remove them in the 19th century involved getting completely shit-faced on brandy before the doctor cut into you to remove them. They didn't have anesthet anesthetics back then. They didn't have antibiotics either, so you pretty much had to be of hearty, stern stuff to survive surgery in any form back then. Which he did, incidentally. He had surgery when he was 17. He was 17 years old. His doctor, or his father, sent him from Tennessee, where the family was living, to Pennsylvania because that's where the best doctors was were and en route he ended up having to have this emergency surgery where yes they got him shit faced on brandy cut into him removed the kidney stone and he survived however it's likely that he got an inadvertent vasectomy at the same time because he never had children god I hope this is good otherwise I'm wasting a ton of alcohol doing this when he was 11 the family moved from moved to the Duck River Valley of Tennessee and that's where the family lived. He, he became a, a son of the state of Tennessee. He lived there when he wasn't politicking in D.C. all of his life. And those were his two homes, Washington, D.C. and Tennessee. When he was 21, he was at, okay, in a brief stint in North Carolina when he was born and when he went there for college. He went there when he was 21. He was admitted as a sophomore, graduated two years later, returned to Tennessee to begin a law clerkship with Felix Grundy, who remained one of his mentors, even though they very rarely saw eye to eye politically. He immediately recognized, um, uh, Polk, not Grundy, that he didn't want to be a lawyer, he wanted to be a politician, but that law was a good stepping stone to get there. And so he studied for the bar, passed the bar in 18, like two years later. Did I not put when he passed the bar? 
1820, he passed the bar. Picking Grundy as a mentor was a good move. Even though they didn't see eye to eye politically on a lot of things, he was a very astute man and he helped get Polk his start in politics, ensuring that Polk was um, elected to be the clerk of the Senate of the state of Tennessee when in, um, yeah, it was 1820 also. So he was the clerk and then he passed his bar exam. I am doubling the recipe for ease of my own brain. Hope it's good. If not, I'll give it to the husband. He likes rum. In 1823, so 1820, he is the clerk of the Tennessee State Senate. He's admitted to the bar. In 1823, he was elected to the Tennessee House of Representatives, and that's where he truly got his start as a politician. And he was only a local politician for two years because he married his wife, Sarah Childress Polk, on January 1st, 1824, and a year and a half later was elected to the U.S. House of Representatives on August 4th, 1825. This is awesome. Again, not sponsored, but I found these tiny little bottles, which meant instead of buying a, you know, 750 milliliter bottle of amaretto for this one drink and then not knowing what I was going to do with the other, you know, 740 milliliters, I got a tiny bottle. Oh my God, life is so much better. I'm not wasting stuff this way. I'm like a mad witch here. <laughs> Even better is the banana because I have no idea what I would make with banana in a cocktail, because I don't do banana daiquiris. Uh, he served seven terms as congressman to the U.S. House of Representatives, starting, the first one started on December 5th, 1825. And he kind of, this is where, I mean, he probably already met Jackson because white genteel families, slave-owning families in Tennessee, they all knew each other. Tennessee wasn't that big. I mean, land-wise, yes, but people-wise, no. So he probably already knew Jackson, but he started to really learn from Andrew Jackson during this time. Um, and Jackson kind of became his mentor, and so much so that eventually one of the two nicknames that Polk picked up was Young Hickory, Young Hickory and Napoleon of the Stump, because he was a really accomplished speech maker, and he just kind of steamrolled everybody like Napoleon did. Uh, there are no cocktails named either Young Hickory or Napoleon of the Stump, and so manifest destiny. Anyways. Jackson as senator and Polk as a novice congressman gave Polk time to really learn and he started to kind of coalesce who he was politically. Frangelico. Polk served seven terms as congressman. His last two terms he was the Speaker of the House and while in Congress he served on the Committee for Foreign Affairs and on the House Committee on Ways and Means and then he eventually made the jump to the executive branch, not as president, ran as governor of Tennessee in 1838-39 which he won August 1st, 1839. However, he only served one term as governor, losing his next two election bids, which brings us up to 1843. So he was a career politician. A lot of people like to say that he was a dark horse. He was not. Dark horse means you're an unknown, He, which I mean, Tyler technically wasn't an unknown, but he was my like surprise favorite. So I went with dark horse for him as a cocktail. But Polk was definitely not an unknown. People knew who he was. Houseways and Means was, is, and remains the largest or the, the most prominent House committee you can be on. And he was the head of that before becoming Speaker of the House. So people knew who he was. He wasn't really a surprise candidate. He ran one term as governor and then lost his next two election bids, which at this point in time, I mean, heck, even today, a lot of people would consider that dead in the water, right? You, you At this point, the people of your own state are rejecting you you're just done. Give it up. Go be a lawyer. That's what you were trained for. Go do that for a while. But Tyler's presidency 
was so contentious, and the Whigs kicked him out, the Democrats hated him, that Polk and his political allies figured that Polk might be a good option for the vice presidential seat on a Van Buren Polk ticket, 1844. And then Texas happened. So what happened with Texas? Texas, if you'll recall, Tyler tried very hard to get that annexed, to come up with a treaty that would be acceptable to everybody to get Texas annexed into the Union. Apparently I'm not multitasking today. There'll be no multitasking for Katrina today. Now you add ice and stir it really well. This is a stirred cocktail, not shaken. It's still very noisy. Now you strain it into, it's supposed to be a chilled Nick and Nora glass. I don't know what that is. I don't have a Nick and Nora glass. I have a Hogwarts tumbler. Oh, that's gonna be a lot of alcohol. Good thing I'm not driving today. Never drink and drive. Texas happens. Tyler's doing his best to get it annexed and this gets hindered considerably when Secretary of State Upshur dies in, a, in an explosion. I don't, I don't remember if I talked about that during my last my review on Tyler, but it, it was in the book. I just don't know if remember if I talked about it. But there was an explosion on a ship that they were uh, commissioning, and Secretary of State Upshur dies. We're almost done with these negotiations with Texas and annexation, and so. Tyler, at the end of his presidency, says, let's bring in John C. Calhoun. He's got unquestioned chops as a politician. He was immediately, Calhoun was immediately confirmed as Secretary of State, and Calhoun brought home the treaty with Texas. Here's the word. This is the other problem with alcohol, guys. I'm having a hard time remembering simple words like treaty. Hmm. That's quite tasty. The problem with Calhoun is he was such an ardent slaveholder that once he got into the Secretary of State position and had the treaty in his hot little hand for annexation and brings it to the Senate, brings it to Tyler to bring it to the Senate, Calhoun then goes out and starts talking to the press and saying, oh yeah, Texas will be a slaveholding state. You bet it'll be a slaveholding state. This is for slavery, slavery, slavery. And the abolitionists in the north were like well we don't want that that's a bad idea we want nothing more to do with slavery i don't think we want texas and the presumed whig nominee who was henry clay stepped up and said nope we don't want slavery if the whigs nominate me i'll make sure to veto any texas annexation bills and then van buren in a colossal misstep basically said exactly what clay said and Andrew Jackson stepped up and said, okay, well, we need Texas. Now, Jackson's not the president, but he's still politically savvy, and he's quite well known. So when he steps in and sees that Van Buren has now shot his own foot off using his we-don't-want-Texas speech, or letter, I guess, technically, he didn't really give a speech on it. He wrote a, he wrote a letter that was leaked to the press, as, you know, all things are. And... Um, Jackson went to Polk and said, hey, we might be able to get you on in on a right Polk ticket, right being Silas Wright. And Polk was like, okay, I could be VP to Wright. I don't care. That sounds good to me. Let's do it. So Baltimore, they basically all of this talk of Texas and Texas being slaveholding and, and annexation, 
left a window wide open in the Democratic field, and Jackson just kind of pushed Polk through it. So Baltimore, 1844. Henry Clay is unanimously elected to be the Whig Party's presidential candidate with Theodore Freelinghuisen as his running mate. And a month later, the Democrats hold their convention, also in Baltimore, because that was 19th century politics. And once the Democrats determined that a two-third majority would be needed, not just a simple majority to determine their candidate, they went to polling. And the numbers shifted back and forth, but by the end of the first day and seven polls, no candidate had been chosen. Into history steps Gideon Pillow, who was one of Polk's men. Not always a good man, as the book makes very clear, but I'm not going to go too much into it. But he stepped in and served his purpose here. Uh, the plan, initially, had been to force Van Buren to withdraw and then promote Silas Wright, James Polk. However, Silas Wright refused to run unless Van Buren voluntarily withdrew. Not forced, voluntarily withdrew. I mean, loyalty like that is like, it is unheard of in the 21st century, but apparently it was somewhat to be admired in the 19th. So Pillow, negotiating with the other delegates, proposed to put forth Polk as a candidate. And the eighth poll occurred early the next morning, which had Polk in fourth place with only 44 delegates voting for him. But after a bit of chaos and yelling, the dust settles, and it's like the delegates were like, we could end this now, Polk's our man. And they put Polk in as the Democratic candidate for the 1844 presidential election with George M. Dallas of Pennsylvania as his running mate. Now, recognizing that this would be a tough fight, Polk appealed to Jackson for assistance. He asked Jackson for three favors. First up was the Washington Globe, which was published by Jackson's friend, Frank Blair, and was constantly attacking Tyler. And unlike today, where no one necessarily knows who, I mean, we can guess, right? We all have, you know, Fox News is on the right, CNN is on the left, they're all idiots, and we all know who's pulling the strings. Wasn't, okay. Boy, my point was just not made the way I thought I was making it. I have it written that nobody knows who's pulling the strings. My bad. We all know who pulls the strings. Even more straightforward back then. Everybody knew that Frank Blair was Jackson's man. Blair was attacking Tyler. And Polk asked Jackson to ask Blair to back off. He was worried that if Blair kept attacking Tyler, then Tyler... Tyler-inclined Democrats might vote for that dreaded third party, no, meaning Tyler, or if the attacks drove Tyler out of the race, the Democrat-inclined Tyler Tylerians might vote for the Whigs out of spite. On this request, Jackson gladly did. He's like, yep, perfect sense. I'm with you. He wrote to Blair. Blair stopped the attacks. I mean, Blair basically hated everybody, but he stopped the attacks, and that was the point. The second request was to persuade Tyler to voluntarily withdraw from the race. And that required some diplomatic skill on Jackson's part, but he pulled it off. I mean, Jackson, he, he could be very diplomatic when he needed to be. And Tyler eventually announced that he would not seek a second term in August of 1844. The third request was to write a letter, to have Jackson write a letter to any friend, so a friend, right, that could be leaked to the press indicating that Tyler loyalists who voted Democrat would be welcomed back to the party and eligible for patronage appointments. Jackson refused. He's like, no, you don't want to do that. This is not something you want to do. Remember, that has gone horribly wrong for Henry Clay. He had that scheme with Quincy Adams, which got Adams 
voted in in 1828? Yes. Yes, 1828. That led to a corrupt bargain, corrupt bargain, which we still don't know if it ever actually happened between Clay and Quincy Adams. However, Clay paid for it for the next 20 years by never getting voted into the White House. He was never even nominated until this year. So ultimately, points one and two were all that was needed to secure the White House for Polk, who won the 1844 election and was sworn in as president on March 4th, 1845, having won partially because during his campaign, he publicly stated, I only want the one term. I'm not going to run again. I only want the one term. And that point served multiple functions and may actually have made his job harder. Um, first, because he swore it was only one term, he did garner a lot of support from future presidential hopefuls, um, who all saw it as just, just four short years until their own term at the White House, right? Four years. I can wait out a Polk presidency and then go for that, four, that, that White House myself. Awesome. People who were unsure decided, hey, it's only four years. If he's terrible, he's gone in four years. He said he's only going to run once. I mean, even if he changes his mind, then we'll all just say he's a liar and he'll be gone anyway. So it's only four years. And then on the flip side, having announced at the very beginning, before he was even elected, that it was going to be a one-term presidency, he went into it as a lame duck. Uh, that left few people with few incentives to play nice with him. They're like, well, he's only here for one year, four years. What do we care? We're, we don't have to do what he says. We don't have to play nice with him because we don't have to worry about him in four years. So it kind of made his job a bit of an uphill battle, but not as bad as it could have been. Partly because he was a dyed-in-the-wool Democrat, and those Democrats support each other, always have. Fucking weirdos. So much for right and wrong. They just support each other. But personally his cabinet would push back probably more than any other president because in the back of their minds they're thinking in four years it could be me how is this going to look how is this going to reflect on me if my name is put forth as a candidate and so everything he did had this undertone with all of his his cabinet of how is how are those optics how is that going to look for me in four years is it going to hurt my chances or help my chances on the other hand, since he was not worried about his re-election chances, this freed his hands considerably so that he was actually able to accomplish everything he set out to do as president. When was the last time that happened? When was the last time that happened as a president? He set out, he had four goals as president that he announced, I think, during his inauguration speech. He wanted to resolve the joint occupation of Oregon, acquire California, reduce the tariff, and establish an independent treasury. I'm off camera with my counting. So he had four things he wanted to do. You may note that nowhere in there was annexed Texas, even though Texas was one of the main points that got him elected. The annex, annexation treaty was defeated in the Senate. I mean, almost before the ink was dry on the document, it was gone. And so Tyler, as his last action as president, I mean, like literally a few hours before Polk was officially, officially sworn in, Tyler sent an offer to Texas not to join the nation as a territory, but as a full state. And that offer was ultimately accepted by both the Senate and the Texas Territory, and Texas joined the Union as a state on December 29, 1845. And Polk never claimed credit for it. I mean, that credit always belonged to Tyler in his mind. However, having Texas as a state in 1845 laid the groundwork for bringing in California. How so? 
Well, the actual boundaries of Texas were a little, a little nebulous, let's say. I don't think following Texas's secession from Mexico in 1836 that the actual boundaries were clearly defined. Mexico thought the boundary was the Nueces River. I'm probably mispronouncing that. Polk thought it should be the Rio Grande. So in 1846, Polk sent troops to, led by General Zachary Taylor, to set up positions along the Rio Grande. And Mexico, because they think, no, the Nueces is your, is your boundary, sent troops to the Rio Grande. And so now we've got Mexico and America facing off against each other on this nebulous gray zone that we don't quite know if that's where the boundary was. And on April 25th, 1846, Mexican soldiers attacked Taylor's position, resulting in 16 American deaths. Uh, military action continued into May. Before news even reached D.C., military action was ongoing, that the war had truly begun. And when that news hit D.C., there was none of this slow supplication of Madison. I mean, Madison approached Congress and asked for you know, the funding of the troops for the War of 1812. But he wasn't, wasn't sure if that was the right thing to do, and he did a lot of hemming and hawing before reaching that conclusion. Uh, Polk didn't hesitate. He showed up in Congress and said, we need to go war. American blood is what's built on American soil. We need to fight this fight now. That, that contention would be challenged before the war ended by a novice congressman called Abraham Lincoln. But for now, it got him what he needed, which was the funding and the troops to fight a war against Mexico. And the war was approved, regardless of the uncertainty of where exactly American soil began in the region. Now, concurrent to all of this, this was 1846, uh, was the question of Oregon. So as part of the resolution of the War of 1812, the Oregon Territory was to be jointly held by the United States and England and in the intervening 30-odd years since the treaty had been signed in 1818, 1816. No, that, that part had been signed in 1818. Anyways, Americans had started moving west so that most of the settlers in Oregon were American. I mean, there were some British, but the overwhelming majority were American. Polk determined that this meant Oregon country should be ours because there were more of us, basically. The quote-unquote campaign slogan of 54-40-year fight which was supposed to mean move our territory all the way up to the 54th parallel, which I think is Alaska. We got it eventually, but not during this. That didn't come about until Polk had already won the presidency. So that was not a campaign slogan of his. And the fighting was utterly unnecessary because England was very amenable to negotiations. They just wanted access to the, to the harbors there, but they didn't really care about the land so much, which is a good thing, or Polk might have found himself fighting a two-front war, which never ends well. But it was unnecessary in the 19th century as the boundary of Oregon, while not extended up to the 54th parallel, was settled at its current location, settled at its current location, giving us our northern border pretty much as it exists today. The agreement was reached on June 12, 1846, when the Senate approved the treaty with England, giving us Oregon, which would eventually break into the states of Oregon and Washington, leaving them Basically, basically, we left England the southernmost island in Puget Sound, which would eventually become Victoria in British Columbia. No shots fired. It was all diplomatically handled. A second point, reduce the tariff. That was more easily done than one would have thought, given that there was no income tax at the time. So tariffs were the only way to raise money, and we now needed money because we were fighting a war with Mexico. 
the administration simply removed the tariffs on tea and coffee, which were the two imports that were not domestically grown. And so why should we tax them? We don't even grow them here. It's not like we're trying to protect people in our country. We're just charging tariffs. So they removed those tariffs entirely. And that passed July 3rd, 1846. 1846 was kind of a red letter year for, for our man Polk. Establish an independent treasury. His plan was for the government to hold its own funds and its own vaults and not have them be deposited in a national corporation or individual banks. Martin Van Buren had actually managed to establish something like that, but it was repealed basically as soon as he lost the election. Harrison, under Harrison and Tyler, that was repealed. And while the Whigs did not manage to reestablish national banks because Tyler kept vetoing them, the national treasury was kind of in limbo. We didn't know what we were going to do with our national funding until the passage of the Independent Treasury Act of 1846, which was basically how national finance was handled until 1913 when the Federal Reserve System was established. So Polk accomplished three of his four stated goals within 18 months of taking office. It's impressive. That fourth goal. That fourth goal is where history comes together. A not insignificant chunk of this book was spent explaining California expansion, John C. Fremont, Kit Carson, and the Mexican-American War, which is logical. This is one of the very few congressionally declared wars in U.S. history. Now, the War of 1812, let's see if we can do this on camera, the War of 1812, Mexican-American War, World War One, World War II, four? No, I think we had another one queued. I think Teddy Roosevelt maybe might have had a declared war. So five declared wars. Everything else is just the president being a dictatorial asshole, guys. They don't have the authority to do what they're doing. So it's only our second declared war. We'll go with that. Isn't that weird? Apparently the Civil War wasn't a declared war either. It was one of the very few congressionally declared wars in U.S. history. And the conclusion of it set our national borders almost exactly where they would be for the duration of the country, for, for, for the duration of our country. Balkanized. Almost. But this explanation reads kind of like a who's who of American history in the mid-19th century. And it sort of drives home the point that history does not happen in a vacuum. There is a real tendency when teaching history, at least in America, I don't know how it's taught in other countries, but in America, we teach them as individual units. This unit is on the Salem Witch Trials. This unit is on George Washington. This unit is on Charlemagne. And so we don't tend to actively realize that large chunks of history are concurrent. The world rotates the same 360 degrees every day, and history occurs everywhere all at once. And so... While Polk is directing all of this from the White House, he's directing John Freeman to explore West and create a topography of California. And while Zachary Taylor is fighting the Mexican-American War, the men fighting with him are Robert E. Lee, P.G.T. Beauregard, Braxton Bragg, Ulysses S. Grant, George Meade, and George McClellan, all of who would go on to become generals in the Civil War almost 20 years in the future. History is not a vacuum. And while Polk gets the credit for the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo that ended the war, he maybe doesn't deserve quite as much credit as, he, as he's given. Uh, not because of the nebulous manner in which the war started. I mean, right, we, again, where was Texas at that time? Who knows? Um, but because he 
had ordered his ambassador. He had sent Ambassador Nicholas P. Trist to, to go down there and negotiate a treaty with specifically defined goals. But then he ordered Trist to return to Washington before the conclusion of negotiations based off of a newspaper article from Mexico that indicated Trist was willing to settle our border at the Nueces River, which was where, which was kind of kicked off the war, right? Trist had made no such statement. He was very close to concluding the negotiations when he received his recall notice. So he ignored the notice and concluded the negotiations. But I guess what Polk does deserve credit for is because a lot of a lot of politicians, a lot of bosses, a lot of idiots would be like, I told you to come home. How dare you? How dare you counterman my orders? How dare you keep negotiating? How dare you? Instead, he received this treaty gift wrapped with everything he wanted. He had Rio Grande. He had all the way to the Pacific Ocean running through New Mexico, Arizona, along the Gila River, so it wasn't quite our southern border, but everything north of San Diego, he had. He got everything he wanted. Trist got it for him. And instead of being a dickhead and being like, no, how dare you keep going even though I had recalled you, he said, you may have gone outside of your dictates because I did recall you, but good job. Good job. You got me what I wanted. And uh, treaty was passed. Easy peasy. And our southern border would be remedied five years later with the Gadsden Purchase of 1853, which basically set our current national boundaries exactly how you would see a map of the United States today. We got California. We got Oregon. We got reduced tariffs. We got an independent national treasury. He set four goals and achieved all four in four years. I know people who can't do that, who can't fix a car in four years. Me, I'm talking about me. And it's not like we just forced a tree. Okay, we forced a treaty, sort of. I swear to God, I don't know if this is a shiny moment for America or not. I genuinely don't. Because part of what brought Mexico to the table for, for treaty is that their treasury was bone dry. They were broke. They were They had nothing. And so we set the treaty and then offered them money for California. I think we paid $15 million for everything north in California. So we paid for it, but we kind of forced them into it. I don't know. Do we judge history? I mean, I judge history. We all judge history all the time. But he got his goals. And he did. He set his goals and he made them. Polk then reaffirmed he had no intention of running again, sat back and watched Taylor claim the White House for the Whigs, having made a name for himself during the War of Mexico, Mexican-American War. Polk was gracious and accommodating during the transition to Taylor's presidency, leaving Washington, D.C. on March 4, 1849, and going on a triumphal tour through the southern states by steamboat and train, return, returning home to Nashville, Tennessee on April 2, 1849 and then died of cholera on June 15, 1849. I think he was the shortest post-presidential lifespan to date. Yes, yes, and he was, what, like 90 days after he left the White House, he was dead? That's pretty short. But I mean, what a way to go. He, he, he did everything he set out to do, and he died before he could become hated, like Tyler did. I mean, poor Sarah, though. Uh, his, his widow, she set the gold standard for what it was to be a presidential widow, wearing widow's black for the rest of her life, which was 42 years. Yeah, 42 years a widow. She lasted until August 14th, 1891.
this was a good book overall. I mean, like I said, it reinforces that history is not static. It does not occur in a vacuum. I was at the bookstore the other day because where else would I be? And um, I saw a book on John Fremont and I thought, nah, I don't, I don't really need to know about that. It's cool. I, I don't need to know about that. And then I read this book and now I'm like, maybe I should go see if it's still available. Learn a little more about Fremont and the California expeditions. I think I'm gonna put Polk at seventh. I mean, he's consistently rated fairly high on rankings because of what he managed to accomplish. I mean, with Jefferson, it was Louisiana Purchase, right? And by crook or by hook, man, he got us the remaining third of the continent. So, and from there, the sky was the limit, man. We fucked it up. We fucked it up. But he gave us the opportunity. And that's pretty much all anybody can do is give you the opportunity. I'm going to put him at seventh. Tyler is still my number one because of the way he thumbed his nose at everybody and did his own thing. And you got John Quincy Adams, John Adams, Washington, Madison, Jefferson, Polk, Monroe, Van Buren, William Henry Harrison, and then Jackson for now. We'll see what happens with Zachary Taylor next month. And for some reason, Millard Fillmore, who my mom said with like disgust in her voice, I don't know what Fillmore did, but I'm intrigued. We got Taylor and then Fillmore. Thanks for watching. I will see you all next week. Bye.